For most of the last 20 years, the conversation about American national security has been focused on the threats posed by extremists. With the death of al-Qaeda leader Ayman al-Zawahiri, Russia's war in Ukraine, and rising tensions with China, today's guest argues that conversation has swung back to great power competition. He's Javed Ali, this week on Story in the Public Square. Hello and welcome to Story in the Public Square, where storytelling meets public affairs. I'm Jim Lutis from the Pell Center at Salve Regina University. And I'm G. Wayne Miller with the Providence Journal. This week we're joined by Javed Ali, an Associate Professor of Practice at the Gerald R. Ford School of Public Policy at the University of Michigan, and he's joining us today from Ann Arbor. Javed, it's great to see you. Jim, uh, always great to be with you, and Wayne, nice to be with you as well. Nice to meet you. So this week we marked the 21st anniversary of the, attack, of the attacks on 9-11. When you look back on that 21-year period, uh, what do you, how do you assess it? Yeah, it's been a long and winding road in counterterrorism, both as a, as a mission and my own uh, insights personally from, from what I was observing firsthand in that, uh, in that world, both before 9-11 and then subsequently uh, afterwards to include being in, in Washington the day of the attacks and driving past the Pentagon about 30 minutes before American 77 hit it. So where we are now in 2022, all these years later, I, I think we've crossed an inflection point um, in national security where counterterrorism is no or has, I would argue the past few years, has no longer or is no longer the number one dominant national security priority that, that just literally draws um, all of the time and attention and resources and capabilities of the U.S. government against the, the terrorist threats, uh, mostly overseas. So uh, I think that moment for our country has come and gone. And probably since the Trump years um, into 2020, and, and now here we are a couple of years later, that the priorities in the landscape for national security has shifted. Where Counterterrorism is still important, but it is not the singular dominant issue the way it was for, for so many years after 9-11. We're going to get into that inflection point and talk a little bit about that in a moment, but I, I want to keep us back in that, in that, in that post-9-11 era. You know, so much of American foreign policy was really redirected, uh, and, and I think in, in the context of the time, there wasn't anybody saying, hey, we're overcorrecting here to concentrate on al-Qaeda and, and Islamist terrorists. But did we overcorrect? Were we too singular in our focus in those in those two decades? Well, I, I would argue in the immediate aftermath of 9-11, we absolutely had to overcorrect to fix all the gaps and flaws and seams and vulnerabilities that Al-Qaeda unfortunately exploited to pull off 9-11. And if you were to go back and do a survey about what that um, what that landscape looked like for the US, it was daunting. And yeah. that's when I joined government in 2002. And then my career started to progress in different departments and agencies. But I would argue the first five to almost 10 years after 9-11, we were making the right choice with respect to trying to apply as much pressure as we could against Al Qaeda. And, and then later in the decade, in the 2000s against its affiliates, 
who were um, almost every day thinking about attacking the United States, the West, uh, our interests and our allies abroad. And, and so the, the threat itself required us to, to make those choices. Then we also had to harden the country as well. But retrospectively too, even though we made, I think the right philosophical choice, operationally and tactically, we made a lot of mistakes. And that is, I think one of the lessons of 9-11 is that even though we were trying to do the right thing, there were times where we didn't do the right thing. And if for the same, if the same set of circumstances were to happen again, we should learn from our, our recent history and not do some of the things that didn't work out well or, or got us closer to the line of, of um, civil liberties and privacy, um, both at home and abroad that we shouldn't go over uh, or morals and ethics. So there's a, there's a lot to unpack in that. But again, going back to my original point, I do think we made the right decision in that first decade, but there were some missteps along the way. So take us back in time in terms of your life, your professional life. What attracted you to national security in the first place and counterterrorism in particular? What, what was it about the, the younger you that said, I, I want to go there, I am going there? Yeah, I actually gave a podcast, a podcast to Michigan about this and uh, last year in the run up to the 20 year anniversary uh, and walked through some of those same um, insights from just my own personal background and how I got into it. But suffice to say, it was um, it was quite an unusual experience for someone from my background as an American Muslim growing up in Metro Detroit in the 70s and 80s and parents who are very educated and successful as physicians to then break off into something completely different into this murky world of uh, government service and counterterrorism and the intelligence. Community. I mean, nobody from my community and my background in those days had ever pointed in that direction. So there was a lot of my own identity that was wrapped up into that. And then having, uh, because of my parents' heritage um, being from India, um, and having been on the ground in India and other parts of the world in the 70s and 80s into the 90s and seeing this very different experience for people overseas, but also seeing the dark side of that experience, um, sectarian tension, political violence, terrorism, poverty, things that you just don't see on that scope and scale inside the United States. And I think that was another factor that even as a young person, drew me into that world. The professional pathway didn't happen till later in life um, when I got to DC in the 90s. But I think the decades before triggered that um, curiosity in me that was, like I said, quite unique uh, at the time I was growing up. So, so I have to ask you what, did you, what did your physician parents think when you made this career choice? Yeah, uh, suffice to say, they were not happy. <laughs> I mean, that's probably, uh, the, the right, um, the right way to put it, uh, respectfully. Um, but uh, they had sort of pinned their hopes on me of carrying in the family footsteps and tradition of, of being a physician. And uh, as I like to tell my students now and other people, the apple couldn't have fallen farther from me. <laughs> um, I didn't have the smarts, the drive, the the passion for medicine and, and science the way. They did. And um, when I got to, to Michigan, my alma mater uh, as an undergrad, and, and um, it was also clear that I wasn't going to sort of do well academically on that path. So I had to make some hard choices myself, um, even in college, about shifting gears and disappointing my parents and, and trying to prove to myself and to them and others that I could actually do something else other than this, um, this pathway that had been 
played out for me, but it was, it was, uh, it was tough uh, for a while to get them to realize that there was this other reality for, for people um, from our backgrounds and from our community. And hopefully over time, I managed to convince them. Well, it, it, it certainly worked out. Uh, and I'm good to hear that. I'm glad to hear that. Getting back to the period after 9-11, is there anything, you know, again, we have, you know, hindsight is twenty twenty. Is there anything we, meaning America, could have done or should have done differently? Again, with 21 years having passed, what's your perspective on that? Yeah, I mean, I think there's a lot of things we should not have done or at least should have thought through a little more carefully and deliberately and realized the pros and cons of some of these choices before we went ahead made them. And I, I have designed a counterterrorism class at, at Michigan that walks through a lot of those policy choices and, and the impact. Um, I think one of them are some of those early decisions that were made in the immediate aftermath of 9-11. Of um, and some of these are still in effect now. Um, one good example is the 2001 authorization to use military force, which is still the guiding legal principle that allows the U.S. military uh, and other parts of the U.S. government to engage in counterterrorism operations overseas. That piece of seminal legislation, which again is still in effect today, was passed by Congress in roughly five to six days. Um, not a lot of advice and or debate and consent about something that would shape the way we engage in the world in counterterrorism for now more than, than two decades. Another really controversial piece of legislation, uh, uh, your viewers remember at that time was the Patriot Act, uh, also passed in October 2001, which um, unlocked a lot of capabilities for um, FBI and other parts of the intelligence community to look at threats domestically. There are still some pretty rigid guidelines, but the Patriot Act um, certainly um, took down some of those walls that existed before 9-11. And the Patriot Act is also likewise still in effect with some modifications around it over the past 20 years. Some other decisions that were made in those early days, um, the decision to use Guantanamo Bay as this detention facility for unlawful enemy combatants. The Guantanamo is still a policy conundrum for the United States in 2022 with a much smaller pool of people still there. I think about uh, 36 uh, or the number might be a little bit more than that. But um, again, what are we going to do with these, the smaller group of people who are still in U.S. custody and never seen the light of day from at least a, a trial perspective? And then I still think the decision to go to war with Iraq in 2003 is one thing that will um, continue to challenge us on the, uh, on the national security front because that was a war of choice. It was not a war of necessity. And I had an insight to that in my own career and my first uh, position. So that's a, a brief snapshot of some of the things in those early days after 9-11 that maybe we should have thought a little more carefully about making some of these decisions. And again, the consequences for us as a country. Hey, Javed, you know, I, the, that's a, an incredible overview. And I think we could probably spend a, an hour talking about each of those things, but I wanna move us up to today. Uh, this summer, uh, the U.S. military killed the then-current leader of al-Qaeda, Ayman al-Zawahiri. Uh, what's your assessment of the, the al-Qaeda and their affiliate uh, threat to the United States today? 
So Al-Qaeda is a fascinating organization as the terrorism watcher. I mean, this is a group that has been around formally since the late 1980s. It was started in Afghanistan uh, with Osama bin Laden uh, and al-Zawahiri. Uh, he wasn't yet, al-Zawahiri at that point wasn't yet bin Laden's deputy, um, but they were personally together and they were close. Um, and there were a lot of other uh, jihadists in Afghanistan who would come in the 80s to fight first against the Soviet Union as that conflict was ending, then a nucleus formed to, to come together with, with Al-Qaeda. So this is a terrorist group that has a lot of staying power, but the Al-Qaeda of 2022 is definitely not the Al-Qaeda of 1988. It's not the Al-Qaeda of September 10th, 2001, and it's not even the Al-Qaeda of um, May 2011, when Osama bin Laden was, was killed by the United States. So it's gone through a series of, of changes. It is under a tremendous amount of pressure. The amount of people who are left in that, um, what I call sort of the vanguard pool of people who were with Al-Qaeda in those uh, early days in the late 1980s, that pool is really, really small. It's not down to zero, even with uh, Al-Zawahri's death. But again, it, it is much, much smaller than it was in, in years past. So one of the really interesting questions going forward is what will happen to the legacy Al-Qaeda organization with the death of Al-Zawari? Is it on its last legs? Will that strike um, trigger its eventual strategic collapse as a group? Will it become defunct and go out of business? I don't think that will happen. But again, it could. Um, it's really hard to predict how, how these things will unfold. But even if that occurs with the legacy Al-Qaeda, which again, battered and bruised, perhaps on in a, in a pretty precarious state, if not in you know final stages, um, there are still five to six groups around the world that either have Al-Qaeda in their name or sworn their allegiance to Al-Qaeda. And that is where the energy of Al-Qaeda uh, as a global sort of brand still is. And there are groups in different parts of Africa um, there's a group still in Afghanistan, Pakistan, that's different from the core Al-Qaeda or the legacy Al-Qaeda. Um, there's an Al-Qaeda, pretty strong Al-Qaeda presence in Syria. Um, and then there's still a pretty enduring Al-Qaeda presence in Yemen. So, uh, so this is a group that even if the, the core group continues to get whittled down, um, the affiliates are going to potentially continue to pick up the slack from the, from the core organization. We need to take a quick moment for station identification. This is Story in the Public Square, where storytelling meets public affairs. An audio version of this show can be heard multiple times every weekend on Sirius XM Satellite Radio's popular politics of the United States. That's the POTUS channel, number 124. We produce Story in the Public Square with a great crew at Rhode Island PBS. And we're lucky to work with them. I'm Jim Lutis. On most days, you can find me running the Pell Center at Salve Regina University in beautiful Newport, Rhode Island. If you want to connect with me on Twitter, you can do so at J.M. Lutis. Joining me as he does every week in the co-host chair is my friend G. Wayne Miller, who is an award-winning journalist with the Providence Journal and the author of 20 books. You can find Wayne on Twitter, too, at G. Wayne Miller. And our guest this week is Javed Ali a University of Michigan Gerald R. Ford School of Public Policy professor and a seasoned national security head who spent much of the last 20 years helping shape America's counterterrorism policy, including service at the Department of Homeland Security, 
the FBI, and is a senior director for counterterrorism on the National Security Council of President Donald Trump. He joins us today from Michigan. So in the immediate aftermath of, of the search of Donald Trump's Mar-a-Lago residence, there were reports of increased threats against FBI agents, the FBI, and other law enforcement. How do you assess that now? How real are these threats? And what, what can law enforcement do? I mean, on a personal level, I'm just thinking if I weren't one of the FBI, and some of the individual agents have actually been threatened, what do we do about that? And Javid, I might just direct this a little bit, a little bit broader to the, to the whole issue of domestic terrorism. Yeah, and I'll try to connect those two pieces, Wayne and Jim. So um, first, as a former FBI employee, I, I served in the FBI from 2007 to 2018, even though uh, throughout that stretch, I was on detail to other um, government organizations, but they paid me every two weeks. So I was a, <laughs> uh, you know, employee for that stretch of time. Um, but um, you know, there, there's really no other way to put it. And I, I've said this in other commentary, and I wrote an op-ed that got published uh, a couple of days ago on this. It's outrageous. Um, the FBI should not have its personnel, whether agents, uh, analysts like myself, other staff, feel like their personal security is now at risk for just doing their job. Now, on the one hand, the FBI as an organization should be held um, accountable when it makes mistakes. And we have seen unfortunate examples in the past several years of, of FBI employees not operating the way um, they should and, and making mistakes with unfortunate results. And when that happens, the FBI should be held accountable or those people should be held accountable. And Director Ray has, has said that himself when these things happen. But at no time should the FBI feel like it's under siege or under threat for just doing its job, like executing the search um, now uh, almost uh, a couple of weeks ago uh, at former President Trump's residence. And uh, in terms of threats against FBI personnel, to include um, last week, someone uh, tried to attack uh, the FBI field office in Cincinnati, which I still don't understand why someone would choose to, to do that um, because of the risk to themselves. And that person got killed in a shootout with law enforcement. We haven't seen this kind of directed anger at the FBI, I would argue, since the days uh, in the aftermath of the standoffs at Ruby Ridge in 1992 and Waco in 1993, where that anger inside the U.S. from people who had grievances who are already probably anti-government and now was reviewing the FBI as sort of a legitimate target to attack. I think we haven't seen something like that for since almost 30 years. And now it's sort of bringing back a lot of those those memories. And in terms of what um, what people should do on the law enforcement side of the FBI side, they're they're antenna is up and their radar is up as, as it should be. Um, it is a crime to threaten federal uh, officers using U.S. mail or other conveyances. So people need to know that there are potentially um, consequences for, for issuing these threats. Clearly, if you try to attack an FBI uh, agent or a facility, there are also consequences. These are highly trained law enforcement officers who have guns on them. So, um, I mean, people need to realize that if if you're going to be so bold as to issue a threat or try to conduct an attack, it is probably not going to lead to a good outcome for you as an individual. And that attacker in Cincinnati last week died. And then this week, somebody issued a, a very specific and direct threat against FBI personnel in Pittsburgh, and he was arrested within 24 hours. So um, 
it's unfortunate that this kind of anger is is getting um, drawn up again or being generated again. But again, there are consequences for people who chose who choose to go over the line. So hopefully, cooler heads will prevail, and this this atmosphere um, gets gets better. But right now, it you know it things are pretty tense. Javid, you uh, earlier mentioned an inflection point uh, for American national security policy, where our focus has shifted from the counterterrorism mission to really, again, re-engage with great power competition and great power conflict, potentially, with the likes of Russia and China. What does that mean from a national security perspective? What does it mean for U.S. policy? And if we can, you know, in the next seven minutes that we've got here, what does it mean for U.S. citizens? You start with whichever yeah. piece that you'd like. Yeah, that's a great question. And this is something that the national security community has been struggling with in the the 2010. So once we got after that or got out of that first heavy counterterrorism focused decade from 2001 to 2011, then the world was starting to change under under our feet. And um, in hindsight, I think it's fair to say that we were all sort of slow to to realize that. Um, and Russia, China, Iran, North Korea, other um, challenges started to rise to the fore. And um, Jim, as you know, it's really hard for the U.S. national security enterprise to change its orientation quickly. And we're not as agile, perhaps, as we should be. But by the mid-2010s, it was clear that those great power competition threats were now um, you know, getting even um, more intense. And counterterrorism was, was still a, a, a really strong issue with the rise of ISIS. But since then, I, I would think those lines have, have crossed. And one really interesting way to, to signal that change was the Trump administration's national security strategy, which I think that was the first national security strategy in the post 9-11 era that signaled that that era of counterterrorism is winding down or won't be as intense as it was previously. And the era of great power competition is now um, rising in prominence. And that was probably the right time to, to to capture that in a document like the national security strategy. Ironically, the Biden administration, um, now almost a year and a half into its tenure, has not issued its own national security strategy. Uh, I thought it would have been out within the first year, but it's still not. But I suspect whenever that document does come out, it'll continue that um, that narrative that the Trump administration started, that great power competition is the thing that is um, uh, the most important national security priority. And we're seeing that with through the lens of the Russian invasion of Ukraine, all the tension with uh, China over Taiwan or, or what the Chinese are trying to do against the United States, even here domestically. Um, COVID has been another game changer from a national security perspective. Uh, climate change or all these other national security issues that are competing with counterterrorism. And when the Biden document finally comes out, I think it'll be fascinating to see how far down the list counterterrorism has fallen. Uh, hopefully it's still in the top five or the top 10. We don't know because the document's not out, but I, I, I have to assume it's not going to be the number one threat the way it was for so many years after 9-11 in these other national security strategy documents. I'd like to return for a moment to the domestic scene. These recent threats against law enforcement are one piece of the pie, as it were. There are, there are domestic terrorist individuals, organizations who threaten 
many other institutions, many other individuals. I'm thinking of black people who are targeted, and, and we've seen obviously a long and, and very tragic history in that regard. Can you give us an overview, putting aside again law enforcement, which we already talked about, what else is going on here, A, and B, what is the government doing? What, what are counterterrorism agencies doing? So the United States has had a long history of domestic terrorism, even depending on your historical perspective. You can take it back to the 1860s with the rise of the Ku Klux Klan back then to the more modern era of the 1960s to, to where we are now. And I've tried to, to look at both of those historical perspectives. But um, in, in the past, we've had competing waves of different types of domestic terrorist threats, both from the far left and the far right, they're not monolithic and there are different sort of individual threats within these broader categories of far left and, and far right. But I would argue where we are now in the United States, perhaps where we've been for the last 10 or 15 years, the domestic terrorism threat in the United States has been much more um, captured by the a, a larger far right threat. And within that far right, there are different strands. There's a white supremacist neo-Nazi strand. We saw the most recent uh, tragic example of that, the attack uh, in Buffalo with the, the, the gunman who was a self-avowed neo-Nazi white supremacist. So we know that threat is enduring here and it's been um, enduring for quite some period of time. We have an anti-government slash militia threat that came to light here in Michigan. And if your viewers remember in the fall of 2020 with this audacious plot to, to kidnap um, Michigan, Michigan uh, Governor Gretchen Whitmer, a lot of anti-government um, folks and militia folks were also present on January 6th to include uh, individuals associated with groups like um, the Oath Keepers and the Three Percenters and the Proud Boys, however you want to characterize them. Um, there are other odd um, types of far-right extremism we've seen here, conspiracy theorists like QAnon, um, this ideological movement known as the Boogaloo, which we've actually seen people mobilized to commit violent attacks or attempt violent uh, attacks on behalf of this boogaloo movement, which has um, anti-government and libertarian and strong um, pro-Second Amendment uh, ideas or philosophies baked into it. So, so the diversity of the far-right threat here in the United States is pretty significant. And again, I would argue this, this phenomenon has been pretty acute for the last 10 or 15 years. And unfortunately, I think it's going to continue to stay high here and that's why the Biden administration is trying to tackle domestic terrorism in a way that no other administration has done um, in the post 9-11 era. And one another way to signal that um, last summer in June of 2021, the Biden administration released the country's first ever uh, national strategy on domestic terrorism. So no other presidency in the post 9-11 era had done that, Bush, Obama, and then to Trump. And I give the Biden administration a lot of credit for trying to tackle this Head on. And if you look at that strategy, it lays out these four uh, pillars that the Biden administration is trying to drive some um, some change and, and some new programs and initiatives. So it's still early in the, the execution of that strategy, but at least there's a more strategic approach to this topic. Um, and hopefully it'll help um, eventually reduce the threat. It's never going to go down to zero, but it shouldn't be as high as it is right now, but I would give the Biden administration um, high marks for getting that strategy out and then trying to put some of these operational pieces into place. 
That's where we need to leave it. Javed, thank you so much for uh, sharing that with us and for all that you do. He's Javed Ali with the Gerald R. Ford School of Public Policy at the University of Michigan. That is all the time we have this week, but if you want to know more about storing the public square, you can find us on Facebook and Twitter or visit PellCenter.org where you can always catch up on previous episodes. For G. Wayne Miller, I'm Jim Lutis asking you to join us again next time for more Story in the Public Square.